welcome to Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and each episode I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Daniel Valenti, Ingenious Prep's Managing Director and a graduate of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business about MBA admissions, what business school is really like, and post-grad career prospects. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely, Alan. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. To start out, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So my name is Daniel Valenti. I grew up in New Mexico and then went to Harvard College for undergrad. At Harvard, I studied psychology. I wrote a thesis with Professor Dan Gilbert in the social sciences department, which I found fascinating and like it was a great capstone for my experience at Harvard. I went on to work in the industry. And when I was working, I was working in student travel and student study abroad programs. After a few years in that industry, I went on to get my MBA at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I got my full-time MBA at the University of Chicago and then started work here at Ingenious Prep. What do you do here at Ingenious Prep? So I'm the managing director here in the United States. That basically means I manage everything on the sales and marketing side of things. So anything that has to do with revenue, I'm oversee in the U.S. Why did you decide to pursue an MBA? Is that something that you had always imagined as far back as undergrad? Was it a later decision? It was a bit of a later decision. When I was an undergrad, I was quite convinced I was going to law school. So I was very focused on my GPA, very focused on studying for the LSAT. Upon talking to some people who are in law school, um, I realized that perhaps it wasn't the right path for me. So I decided to go go ahead and start getting some work experience and, and got a job and a paycheck and kind of entered the working world for a few years. And it was during that time that I started to realize an MBA would really help me transition from an individual contributor to a manager, which is a, a big change for a lot of people and a big step. So a lot of what the MBA is focused on is making that transition from somebody who is effective by doing things very well to then being effective as a manager. Did you feel at the time, and do you still feel this way, that the MBA is maybe one of the primary ways to make that step, or are there a lot of paths to make that transition? There are quite a few paths to make that transition, though an MBA helps a lot. I'll have to caveat that by saying it really matters what company you work for. So there's some companies where it just, it literally is not possible to progress in your career without the MBA. So you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world, the McKinsey's of the world, you you are measured on your progression, and then you reach a point where you simply can't progress unless you go get an MBA. So there are companies that just outright require that, that step in order to take on more management responsibilities. Um, but there's other companies and other roles where it's a little bit more of a gray area. And, you know, some people can do it without the training and some people need the extra training. What was the MBA admissions process like for you? Did you struggle with anything? The, you studied for the LSAT, was that helpful as you kind of transitioned to the GMAT? So the admissions process was pretty straightforward for me. The GMAT, I didn't have a ton of trouble with, got somewhere in the mid 700s, um, which at the time, you know, was pretty good. Now it's kind of a minimum requirement for the top schools. So the GMAT didn't provide too much of a, of a problem for me, though, looking back, and, and I think we'll talk about this later, the biggest challenge was telling my story 
telling the story of why you need an MBA. So, so business schools are very focused on this. You know, what have you done up until now? What are you going to do? And why is MBA that necessary ramp that fills in that, that gap from where you are to where you're going to be? And you need to really tell a coherent, clear story for the MBA. And that's unlike something like, let's say, medical school. It's pretty clear why you're going to medical school, because you're going to be a doctor. The MBA is much more subjective, and you have to be able to tell that story in a compelling way. And the essays, the letters of recommendation, and the other pieces of the application are extraordinarily important in that regard. And that's what I struggled the most with, was telling that story. I mean, Stanford has a famous question, you know, what, what do you want to do really? Um, and these different schools have ways of pulling out what you truly want to do with the MBA to try to understand why you're getting the degree and what you're going to do next. Has the admissions process for an MBA changed since you applied? You know, I don't think it's changed too much. Of course, there's shifts here and there. I know I alluded to earlier, the average GMAT scores just sort of keep creeping up over time, sort of like the Flynn effect with IQ. I'm not sure. Generally, MBAs follow a trend line. They're usually a couple years behind industry trends. So when Silicon Valley and, you know, certain tech companies become exceedingly popular, a few years later, MBA business schools are struggling or, or scrambling to find as many hires from those kind of coveted tech firms as they can. So there's always a bit of focus shift across firms and industries in terms of which are the more or less popular firms and industries at the moment, but that's pretty gradual. And I think the overall pieces of the MBA application are, are fairly unchanged. Could you give me a basic overview of what the MBA admissions process looks like? What are the application components? What are the types of candidates who are applying which schools are the best? Like a lot of schools, there's a standardized test required. Um, most schools will accept the GRE or the GMAT. We at Ingenious Prep typically recommend taking the GMAT. It's a business school specific test. Most schools like seeing it, even if they say they'll take either one. So, so studying for the GMAT, doing well in the GMAT is kind of a necessary checkbox, but it won't really help you get into schools beyond just kind of checking that box that you're academically qualified for the school. Secondly, like many schools, they look at your college transcript. So both the, the university you went to, the rigor of the the courses and how you performed in those courses. More specific for, for business schools, they put a lot of emphasis on the letters of recommendation, your work experience, and your essays. So as I alluded to a bit earlier, telling that story is extraordinarily important for business schools. And the emphasis that goes into these things is often overlooked by applicants. So your letters of recommendation are extraordinarily important, right? Your the people you've worked with in your job or in your career um, will make a, a big impact on, on what the school thinks of your abilities and how you've done in the real world. Similarly to that, the work experience is often overlooked. So students will think, oh, you know, I can work one place for a year or two and a second place for another year and then apply. You know, there's really a strong emphasis on work experience for top business schools. And there's also, I must say, there's a lot of weight put on the prestige of the firm you work for. So, you know, we like to think it's kind of egalitarian. And, you know, if you chose your own path after college and did something interesting, that's good for you. But when it comes to the business school process, the prestige of the job that you hold actually does hold quite a bit of weight. And I, I think I just kind of like to pull that out as one of the pieces that's often overlooked by applicants. Other than that, as I mentioned, the essay is extremely important. It's really your chance to tell your stories our students work on essays for many, many drafts. It's probably the, you know, the number one thing we work on in terms of hours spent um, is telling that story of why you need an MBA and why now timing is important as well. Um, and then of course, kind of the, the standard components of an application. 
So the students who are applying, would you say they are maybe three to five years out of undergrad, five to 10 years out of undergrad? So standard is three to five years and each school publishes what, what their class profile is. So you can see kind of the average age and the standard deviation of the students who go there. However, there are a lot of schools that are more amenable to non-traditional applicants. So those are people who are, you know, usually seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years out of undergrad. A lot of times they had spent time in the military. I know when I went to Chicago Booth, I had classmates who were fighter pilots, who had families and children who were, you know, would be considered non-traditional applicants. So it does vary and most schools are open to those applicants, but kind of the sweet spot is, as you mentioned, three to five years out of, out of undergrad. Could you also talk about not only which schools have the best MBA programs, but maybe what are the personalities of each school? What are the kind of candidates they look for? So this is actually sort of interesting in the MBA realm because there's a whole lot of rankings out there. And I feel like there's more rankings out there for MBA than there are for maybe medical school or undergrad where, you know, The Economist has a ranking, Forbes list has a ranking, Poets and Quants amalgamates the rankings. Of course, there's the US News and World Report rankings. So it is a bit of an interesting space and they all use different techniques for how they rank the schools. A lot of them focus on salary after MBA. So that's that true business school mentality of what's my ROI, what's my return on investment? What am I getting from this extremely expensive degree? I would recommend probably using the Poets and Quants ranking system simply because they assign weights to the different lists and they amalgamate that into one list that's more or less averaged across the different the different rankings. So I think that's probably the best place to start in terms of a ranking that's not going to be way out there in outer space. I know, you know, for The Economist, for example, I know they put like, I think they have Michigan Ross as like number three way ahead of Harvard. And, you know, there's some things that don't make a ton of sense. And also use common sense and talk to people in industry to see which schools are are best. Um, I would say it's kind of probably pretty common common knowledge or or kind of accepted principle that Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford are probably kind of that top group of three, probably in the order. Stanford's probably slightly ahead of Harvard, and then Wharton number three. Of course, it depends what you what you'd like to pursue with your MBA. So you know, Wharton is known as a finance school. Stanford GSB, or people call it GSB, is known as an entrepreneurial school. But of course, that's not, they're not unidimensional. These schools are very good at many things. So by no means would you need to forego Stanford GSB and go to Wharton because you wanted to work in private equity. Um, I have some great friends who studied at GSB and went into private equity and have had a wonderful career so far. I think that kind of rounds out the top three. And then kind of the next tier below is, you know, University of Chicago Booth, where I went, Western Kellogg. You know, these schools have really r- risen up the rankings. Um, and actually, if you go check my math on these rankings, you might say I'm underselling Booth. Booth is usually now number two on a lot of these rankings or sometimes number one um, on the rankings that we've mentioned. So Booth has is, is done an excellent job rising up the rankings. They do an excellent job with career placement. MIT Sloan is also in that group, kind of probably towards the bottom of that group, Columbia as well. Tuck is an interesting school. Tuck doesn't rank terribly well for what it provides to the right student. So, so Tuck is usually kind of rounding out the top 10, I would say number nine or number 10. Um, but for the right student, Tuck can be the best school. I mean, it's a very niche school up in New Hampshire. They have some very solid connections for people who, who want to get into certain industries. So Tuck is often overlooked, in my opinion. And then kind of Yale School of Management, I think usually rounds out that top 10. And then we kind of move to the next tier of schools. Or maybe just your 
anecdotal experience. How are most candidates financing an MBA? I know maybe some companies pay for it. Are a lot of people just taking on a lot of student loans because they know that they're going to have like a high return on their investment that they can pay those loans off with their big fancy salary? I think all of those things are true. So there are the big companies that were the MBA is part of the pipeline. And these companies usually pay tuition. The people I know who went that route, tuition was paid for. A lot of them still took out loans or still drew down their savings quite a bit um, because there's living expenses too, right? Living in Chicago, living in New York City, living in Philadelphia, Palo Alto, it's going to cost money. Even if your firm is paying your tuition, um, you're still burning through quite a bit of money. There's also, you know, sometimes talked about that MBA lifestyle. There's a lot of travel, international travel. Stanford GSB students, for example, go to Las Vegas overnight and come back for classes the next day things like that. So it is an expensive degree. So as you mentioned, people in the pipeline from their company will have tuition paid by their company. They usually owe a certain number of years afterwards or else that money will be clawed back. So Bain will pay and then you'll continue to work at Bain. And so long as you work, I believe it's three years free and clear in terms of that tuition being paid for. As you also mentioned, a lot of students take out loans. So that's probably, you know, the preponderance of students take out some amount of loans for their MBA. And that's, that's very common. You know, thirdly, it should be mentioned that a lot of students having been in the workforce for three, four or five years, you know, have some some substantial savings. They use their savings as well. So, you know, they're not always taking out loans for the full cost of the MBA. But I would say there's a, a bit of a mix of all, of all those three. What would you say maybe about the return on investment for someone who is thinking about fully financing their MBA through loans? If they're going to go that route, do they really need to be purposeful about the kind of career they're going to go into after to pay off those loans? Because, you know, I imagine with the law school, you have people taking on a lot of loans, but if they're not going to go into big law, they might not necessarily make enough to be able to pay off those loans and get ahead of the interest. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something um, that, that merits a lot of thought. And a lot of these rankings actually publish both average and median salaries post MBA and average and median salaries, you know, five years out of MBA. So someone can look at those those numbers to try to kind of understand the ROI. People applying to business school should be fairly uh, numerically sophisticated. So of course you have to remember that those numbers that they give you in terms of salary are before taxes, right? So you actually, you know, you see about probably 60% or 70% of that money, whereas um, the, you know, the loans you pay back are after taxes. So there's things like that to consider. Of course, there's the industry um, that you're interested in. I would say, you know, there's a fair number of MBA students who truly want to do one thing, but they will go into consulting and they will go into investment banking for a few years just to clear those loans um, and get back on their feet um, after the MBA. So I will say there's some some strategic decisions in terms of, of the loan amounts that people have. And it's very wise, as you mentioned, to to both think about the financial effects of the MBA and, and what, what things are going to look like uh, years down the road for you. Do you have any classmates, friends, colleagues who regret their MBA? Um, there probably are a few. I have talked to people from across the spectrum who, you know, wish perhaps that they didn't get an MBA. Um, and that will, that kind of feeds into a broader piece that I wanted to discuss in more detail in terms of why get an MBA. So that's a huge question. As I mentioned earlier, you know, why get an MD degree? Because you're going to be a doctor. Why get an MBA? Well, there are a lot of reasons and some reasons are good reasons and some re reasons are bad reasons. The number one mistake, in my opinion, that I see students who regret getting their MBA is students who don't know what they want to do with it right after college. So an example I always give is at most top schools, recruiting for your summer internship starts a few weeks or a month 
after you start your first year. So people go in, some, some people go in with this expectation that they'll find themselves, they'll take a smattering of classes. They're not sure if they want to be in VC or private equity or entrepreneurship. And they'll say, you know, I'll kind of find myself during my MBA. I would say that is probably the biggest mistake I see with, with people who get an MBA and then regret it because you really don't have time to find yourself. You arrive on campus and then in a few weeks, you are recruiting for the summer positions that you hope turn into a full-time offer. So, you know, the, the way to maximize the MBA degree is to get there the first day knowing exactly what you want to get out of it. And for the majority of students, it's going to be a particular firm or a particular set of firms in an industry. So the students who do well get into Booth and, you know, they were in consulting, maybe a mid-tier firm, A.T. Kearney, a great firm, but not where they wanted to be. And they said, the first day they said, I'm here because I want to work for McKinsey or I'm here because I want to work for Bain. Those students, there is a, you know, an excellent kind of pipeline for them to practice their case studies, to take the right classes, to be in the right clubs, to have exposure to the companies that are recruiting them. Um, and that's the same for private equity. That's the same for venture capital. That's the same for companies like Amazon and Apple and things like that. Um, but those students tend to get the most out of the MBA. And then the students who get the least out of the MBA, like I said, show up and say, you know, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here to get an MBA. You know, I'm used to always getting that next thing, that next award certificate through my whole life. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. So an MBA seems, seems like a great stamp to, to go for. Um, those students I continually see struggle the most in terms of getting value out of their, out of their business degree. Could you discuss as well the different types of MBA programs? I know we have maybe at like the lowest level online, then we have in-person, we have part-time, we have full-time. So there certainly is a smattering of different types of MBA degrees, as you mentioned, um, and each school does it a little bit differently. So Chicago Booth, for example, they have the full-time MBA, which I was a part of. They had the part-time MBA, which is in in the evenings. And it's the exact same professors, the exact same courses just held at a, a downtown campus in the evening hours instead of the daytime hours. And then there's also executive MBAs where companies fly executives in for usually, you know, a set of weekends during the year. And they also eventually get an MBA as well. Uh, I believe the current CEO of Microsoft did that at Chicago Booth and Microsoft sent him down there for him, him to get an MBA. And then he was promoted to CEO afterwards. So there are, as you mentioned, many different types. And what I like to do to kind of understand these types is break down basically the three things people get out of an MBA, and they're going to be different for each type. So number one is knowledge transfer. Just understanding the content that is taught in an MBA. That piece can be had pretty much similarly at any type of the MBA programs you mentioned. You can take a free Coursera course or one of the MOOCs, the massive online courses, and you, you know, for free or near free, you can understand the content of what is taught in an MBA. So that is essentially equal across the different programs and is not something people really pay extra for. The second piece that I like to, to think about in terms of the, the value of an MBA is the stamp of approval, right? You, you got into that school, you completed the curriculum and you graduated. So, you know, having gone to Wharton, for example, you're a Wharton graduate at that point. And a lot of employers and people care about that aside from just the, you know, the, the specific content that you may have learned at Wharton, right? So if you took two people and one, you know, audited all the classes and, and got the perfect score on all the exams, but didn't get the degree and the other, you know, went through and was admitted and got the degree to a lot of employers or pretty much every employer, the person who actually was admitted got that stamp of approval from Wharton 
um, will be more attractive. So there is that just uh, the reality of clearing that hurdle, getting that stamp of approval. Um, and that's something that the full-time programs do that a lot of the part-time weekend and executive online programs don't do very well, right? Because those programs, a lot of them are open to anyone. Some, some of them are more competitive. So that's something to think about when you're deciding, you know, what matters to me about, about the MBA. And then thirdly, I think the third big component of getting an MBA is a network. So you, you have classmates, you have professors you stay in touch with, you have people you can reach out to for the rest of your life. Um, and you get that network at the full-time programs. You typically don't get that network or at least as robust of a network in the part-time programs. If you participate in the online HBS class, you're not privy to the HBS network, right? You're not in a section. You don't have that kind of full experience of people you can reach out to throughout your career. When I think of the different programs, I, I think of those three pieces and think about what do I want to get out of the MBA, MBA the most and what's right for me. And for a lot of students, the part-time makes perfect sense. If you're already in the job you love and you just want, you need to know accounting and you'd like to, you know, take some classes on management and learn those pieces, then, you know, the part-time or online programs can be fantastic. Um, however, if you're really looking for that stamp of approval so you can apply to McKinsey, then they wouldn't be as advantageous for you. Are there any MBA programs, and certainly you don't have to name them, but that might be you know, of lower value that students should avoid, maybe even that are kind of like scammy. I'm thinking maybe like for-profit colleges. It's hard to say too much without seeing, seeming elitist, but I think when you drop out of the top 20 programs, um, I think that kind of usually rounds out around maybe UT Austin, Keenan Flagler, you know, USC. Some of, There's kind of a, I think a bottom right around UT Austin, I think number 20 or 21-ish. I think once you go below those programs, you have to seriously think about the money you're putting in and what you're getting out of the programs. There are, you know, unlike medical school where, you know, most students get into no medical schools. If you're set on getting an MBA degree and you want to pay, you can get an MBA degree, no matter how low your GPA is, no matter, you know, how poor your stats are. So at, I would say below the top 20, it's probably behooves one to be very careful about the MBA they're applying for, the school they're applying for, and what they're going to get out of it. I'll also mention something that was surprising to me in the process was that there are a lot of firms and companies who simply will not hire from schools below a certain ranking, right? So I know I keep using the consulting examples, but the BCGs, McKinsey's, Baines of the world, they have a list of what they call target schools, um, where they actively go to the school, the school coordinates meeting the students, the, the school coordinates interviews, the school coordinates having their students hired. And those are target schools. And you absolutely have a fantastic chance of getting hired at one of those companies. However, if you're just a few schools down on the list that are not a target school, you know, Georgetown McDonough might not be a target school for McKinsey. Don't quote me on that, but it's possible that it's not. So you could go to Georgetown McDonough with the idea that you want to work at McKinsey. And unfortunately, it's just not an option for you. McKinsey just doesn't come to the school. McKinsey doesn't hire people from the school. Of course, I mean, if someone might write in that there's these rare exceptions, one out of a thousand, and that's true, but you're not in the pipeline and it's extremely difficult. So one thing I advise students at Ingenious Prep to do is to work backwards, right, from where they want to be and make sure that the school that they're looking at is a stepping stone to get there. So you want to go to private equity or, you know, you want to work at some prestigious VC company on Sandhill Crane Road, you want to be sure that Emory is going to allow you to do that before you go. So working backwards is also really helpful, I find. And I'm imagine that these, this is all really great advice. I imagine this is an advice that the 
admissions office themselves are probably going to give students because they want students to think, oh, you know, an MBA is going to open so many doors for me. I'm going to be able to do everything. And they probably are overselling the benefits without speaking on any of the disadvantages. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, badmouth any of the admissions offices. I think a lot of them are quite transparent with which firms hire out of their school, you know, what the starting salaries look like. If you're a savvy MBA applicant, you can really pull those up from each school and say, okay, Amazon hired 27 students from Booth last year. Their starting salary was 160000 um, You know, I, I think I have a good chance getting in that cohort next year, that type of thing. So I think the data is out there. Though what you say also is true that, you know, there's a bit of marketing involved in the schools. And of course, they want as many people to apply as they can get to apply. I would say my personal opinion is that the the non-traditional students are oversold a bit in the admissions process. So, you know, the, the brochures will a lot of times have that kind of glossy, those glossy, interesting students who are, you know, installing, you know, solar panels in sub-Saharan Africa and trying to turn it into a business. I know 10 years ago, microloans were very fashionable. There's kind of the admissions office and the marketing department seem to pluck these very unusual students out to highlight them. And then I found when actually attending both admin weekends and school in general, um, the average student was much more standard. The average student was much more consulting or a banker who wanted to get that next consulting and banking job. Um, and these these kind of creative, interesting cases were were much fewer and far between than perhaps the literature would would lead you to believe. Mention creativity. Is an MBA a place where creativity is sort of fostered? You know, they want people to think outside of the box or are they trying to teach people the dimensions and the walls of the box? That's a good question. I think a good business school will teach both. Highly compensated leaders are essentially paid for making a very few good decisions, right? Highly compensated leaders aren't paid for just churning out a high volume of work with a low error rate, right? Doing accounting at a, you know, a, a really good error rate and getting 10 hours of accounting done a day rather than the average person got eight. You know, that's not really what business schools are training people for. Business schools are training people to make those few pivotal decisions for an organization that will lead it to excellence. So in that respect, I think the schools, the, in the good schools, really do focus on both creativity and kind of psychology of leadership, common pitfalls and kind of logical fallacies. I know we, you know, it's kind of classic in, um, in business school to go through some of these cases where the leaders made the wrong decisions. HBS is very case study heavy. So they go through the case over and over again, elicit new, new ideas, new ways to have solved the case or solved the problem. So in that respect, it's quite creative. Of course, there's also just the core, the core courses, right? I mean, you, you have to have that backbone of accounting. You have to have that backbone of financial uh, literacy and things like that and in order to make those decisions. So I, I do think for the most part that the top schools are both. You mentioned that you attended Admit Days. What led you to choose the University of Chicago? I went over to the University of Chicago for the Admit Weekend. It was a great weekend. I remember... Um, meeting with professors, hearing courses, and hearing how how forward thinking they were with particularly entrepreneurship um, and creative thinkers at the school. So they had shepherded through founder of Grubhub, who founded this food delivery app at the University of Chicago, and he had gone through kind of with with professors there, and they had talked about that. Um, There's some other you know excellent entrepreneurs who had who had gone through the program. So hearing firsthand from the professors 
um, and meeting other students really helps solidify, you know, how strong University of Chicago is in that in that respect. You've touched on this a little bit, but could you go more in depth about how an MBA really differs from the undergraduate college experience? It will depend a little bit. Some students do get a business degree undergrad. Of course, Wharton offers a business degree undergrad. Um, But for the vast, vast majority of MBA students, you know, this is their first business training outside of the workforce. So the vast majority, you know, majored in either STEM or humanities in college and didn't get that kind of backbone in accounting, those, those core courses in business. Also, as something I alluded to, almost all students have years of experience in the workforce, two, three, four, five years in the workforce before getting their MBA. So the classroom experience is quite different. It, you know, you're not only dealing in hypotheticals or what, reading a textbook, you're hearing from people who actually made decisions or saw things in their firms um, and they're bringing that to bear in the classroom. And that's part of why these top business programs hire people with experience so they can enrich their classmates' experience as well with their kind of shared interests. And that's why the class is so carefully chosen in terms of industry and job function and that kind of thing. So so there's so many perspectives in the classroom. So I'd say that is one of the biggest differences of the MBA versus an undergraduate degree. Secondly, I think a huge difference is the focus on career. So, you know, when I went to college at Harvard, certainly there was, you know, a few emails about career day and you could go to the gym and there was uh, firms there who would talk to you if you wanted to give you a free candy bar uh, or a hat or something. And that was, it was a very tangential part of the experience at business school. Getting that job is the primary focus of the school. The school has full-time career counselors on staff. They help you write your resume. They help you hone your resume. I was very surprised that the job application process was so systematized. It wasn't just that you, you know, sent off your application on an email to a few firms that you found interesting. Um, there's a centralized process. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the school has meeting rooms. There's times where certain firms come, they meet the students. Um, the school even kind of keeps track of which students are moving forward and at which places in order to keep spots open for students where, that are not moving forward at a particular firm. So I'd say another kind of my second big realization at business school was that so much is focused on on that career opportunity, even so much so that academics usually take a back seat. If you have a required class or a test and you tell the professor, hey, I had my Google interview on that day, so I'm not going to be there, the professor pretty much says fine. That was interesting to me that it was a little bit more of you know, moving towards an end. And it wasn't that knowledge is a, you know, an end in itself, just, you know, learning more for the sake of learning more, maybe like a philosophy degree, you know, using the means towards the end of getting the job you want is very much part of the process. I think that's true for some undergraduate schools as well, because I went to USC and I think compared to some other undergraduate schools. USC is a lot more career focused and students even at that undergraduate level are very focused on recruiting, you know, what internships they're going to get. It's definitely a different environment. I think that's another thing students can weigh as a pro and con and it's more of like a competitive, sometimes like cutthroat, hardcore environment. I think that's something to consider as well as far as what kind of environment do you thrive in? regarding environment that you thrive in, business school is extraordinarily team heavy. So if you are someone who likes to work out problems by yourself in a quiet room and think about them deeply alone, business school may be very challenging for you because nearly every assignment, nearly every problem set, nearly every presentation is going to be with classmates. So I would say 
from my anecdotal experience, 90% of what you do is in some sort of group and not individual. So I just wanted to flag that also as a difference in, in business school. Sure. And then are there any other misconceptions you'd like to speak on about what studying for an MBA is like, you know, things that students expect or that they don't expect, and then they come on campus and are quite surprised? There's some reputations of MBAs as, you know, a lot of parties and, and dorm room parties and traveling, which can be true, but the myth would be that you have to do that. So I think the MBA, especially at Chicago Booth, they respect you as an adult. They let you choose your curriculum and you can really choose your own path. So you can you know, go headfirst into the networking and party scene and, you know, recruiting um, at certain firms, or you can decide to take a more nuanced path and, and, you know, study private equity and really get into the academics a little bit more. So while I say that a lot of the reputation that some of those, the business schools have is well-deserved, it's also not necessary. One can choose his own, his or her own path in business school and make the most out of it, whatever they choose. How does an MBA prepare their students? For work afterwards? Sure. Basically, the purpose of the MBA degree is to prepare you for work afterwards. There's a lot of emphasis, you know, like I said, on management versus being an individual contributor. There's a lot of practice. There's clinics. You know, I remember, for example, at University of Chicago, a very memorable weekend. They had us, you know, they had us in a meeting. It was a mock meeting, of course, where we had certain papers given to us about what the what the purpose of the meeting is. Um, and they videotaped us, right? And I had thought that I did a fantastic job of incorporate of letting everyone speak in the meeting and, and all this kind of thing. And then they would show the video of, you know, putting your arm across the table or, you know, speaking over someone quickly or, you know, these things that you wouldn't ever catch yourself doing if you're just in a, in a regular classroom. Um, so that was an interesting perspective in terms of preparing for future work. The MBA also, as I said, does a lot of practice, a lot of mock presentations, focuses on what work is really like after the MBA and less of reading a textbook and memorizing answers. So there is a lot of kind of interactive and kind of mock and practice work as well. When we're looking at post-MBA career prospects, to what degree is it that students will be heavily recruited by top firms, maybe at top schools versus students now have this MBA degree, but they still have to kind of go hustle by themselves to get what they want? So it can be both and the school will help you do what you'd like to do. So for example, if your dream job or your ideal situation after the MBA is at a firm that's not, you know, it's a small firm, it's in a, you know, you want to work at a kombucha company in Hawaii or something, and they're not actively flying to HBS and recruiting HBS students, the school will work with you to, to find those firms. The school, I know Chicago Booth pays, I think at least two people full-time to essentially do the inverse of recruiting. They fly around the world and talk to firms about how great University of Chicago students are and how they would be a great addition to their firm. So they sort of you know, there's an entire ecosystem of talking firms into recruiting out of the schools. That said, if if the particular firm that you'd like to work for doesn't recruit out of your school, the career office will do everything in their power to get you that job, to help you um, make those connections, to help you find that ideal internship or the ideal job. And there's plenty of students who do decide to go on that more, the path less traveled, right? I know uh, one of my friends who went to HBS, he did go into consulting afterwards at Parthenon, um, but then he, he worked for Green Mountain Coffee, which is a, you know, a, a fairly medium-sized company out of Vermont, I believe, in the coffee industry. So both the business school and kind of your post-business school job will a lot of times lead you to a more specific industry function. So say you go to Wharton and BCG comes in the recruiting Wharton students. What does that look like internally as far as 
competition between students? You know, do you need to be at like the top like 10% of students academically? Is there a significant portion that kind of goes to your individual charisma as you're interviewing and networking? You know, what does that competition look like between students at these top schools? That's a great question. So, and that brings up several important points um, in the recruiting phase. So number one, everyone wants to see more or less, everyone wants to see everybody else succeed. So there is a lot of help. The second years are always helping the first years prepare for interviews. There's basically unlimited free interview prep for all the companies that, that people wish to apply to. There's unlimited case study prep from second years. Everyone wants to see everyone succeed and no one knows how it's going to shake out. So if your ranking is McKinsey, BCG, AT Kearney, um, you know, you may, you may get your third or fourth choice and your buddy next to you may get the first choice, but you, you don't know from the outset how it's going to shake out and you just hope everyone succeeds. And that, that really is the feeling I got at Chicago Booth. I didn't feel like people were pushing each other out. Um, and then another big piece that that question brings up is grade non-disclosure. So I guess I forgot to speak about this earlier, but at most or many of the large business schools, there is an agreement that you cannot share your grades with employers. So when McKinsey is recruiting out of Booth, they actually don't know what your grades are. So a, a straight C student essentially has the same chance as a straight A student when recruiting uh, for McKinsey. Everyone signs an agreement that they will not release their grades to their to the employers out of business school. That only is true when applying for the firms hiring you out of school. So a year later, five years later, 10 years later, of course you can send your transcript if a, if a firm requests that, which usually they actually don't. But for those, the jobs out of school where people are directly kind of in competition for a few spots, you can't share your grades. So then the criteria that these firms are recruiting for is the maybe the knowledge that would have been shown in those transcripts. Are you kind of communicating that within the interviews itself if talking about case studies, like I said, is it about maybe like charisma and who they want to kind of go have a beer with after work? There's probably better resources than I am in terms of what each of these firms is looking for. Um, but it's, you know, they've honed their process over many years to really find the candidates that they that work well for them. So I will say it's an extraordinarily difficult process. It's many, many rounds of interviews. As you mentioned, your your presence, the way you speak, the, your likability does play into it because for a lot of these firms, you are client facing. You are going to represent the firm to their clients and have their clients pay the firm uh, for your services. So there is some of that. Um, there also is, as you mentioned, a lot of the case studies, a lot of the case study interviews, they watch your ability during the interview. So you know you may be used to certain companies just saying, hey, tell us about yourself, walk us through your resume. Bain will say how many golf balls fit in a 747 jumbo jet. And they want to see you make those calculations in front of them to see how you think. And they'll ask questions that you couldn't possibly know the answer to, uh, you know, how many gas stations are there in the United States, but they want you to see, okay, you know, in most uh, cities with uh, over 500,000 people, there's probably about 300 gas stations. And so, and there's only 10 of those cities. So 10 times 300 is, you know, and then they watch you go through the calculations and that gives them confidence in your ability to solve problems. And I don't know if that's a direct substitution for their transcript. I don't, my guess is that these firms wouldn't substitute a transcript for their case studies. They wouldn't just look at your, oh, he has, he has all A minuses. He must be this good. So we'll go ahead and hire him. My guess is that they like their, their system as, anyways. And I'm not sure if these firms wish that there was more information and data to go on from transcripts or if they're happy with the way it is. To kind of round out everything we've been talking about, who shouldn't pursue an MBA? Who, if they're listening right now, would you say, no, don't do it? 
<laughs> sure. Well, I think I got at that a little bit earlier. So my top advice, and when I speak with people at Ingenious Prep or for people who are considering Ingenious Prep, uh, those people who who really don't know what their next step is, you know, many of the essays that say why an MBA and why now, a lot of them say, well, I don't know, but can you help me kind of come up with an answer? And certainly we can um, help kind of tell a credible story, but that is typically a mistake in my opinion, because you really should know exactly why you want an MBA, what you want to get out of it, why you need to go now. Um, and those students who, like I said, not quite sure, a lot of students call us when they're finishing their senior year of college, and it just kind of feels like they need a next step and they know they don't want to go to med school. They know they don't want to go to law school. So they say, well, an MBA kind of keeps the doors open and it feels like a generally good next step. And, you know, my my aunt and my 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 mother's best friend will stop bugging me about what I'm going to do with my life. I can just say I'm getting an MBA and then it kind of answers that question for two years. Those are people that I think should stay away from the degree. Um, and like I said, people who have a very fixed idea of what they'd like to do with the degree which firms they'd like to work for, what industry they'd like to be in, or what they'd like to accomplish, I think the degree works the best for them. How rare is it for someone straight out of undergrad to get an MBA? Does that, is that completely unheard of? I think at the top programs, that's basically unheard of. And, and as many listeners know, the top programs do offer deferred admissions. So very top students can apply. I think HBS calls it the two plus two program. You know, Stanford calls it late start or deferred admissions or, or something like that. So all the programs kind of have their own version of a late start where you get admitted as a senior in, in college and you have that guaranteed spot in two years or three years. Um, and then usually the school will even help you find a career or a job or, or what you'd like to do in the interim. So that's a very nice, you know, that's very nice to have in your back pocket, right? To go into the world after your senior year of, of college, knowing that you have that, you know, HBS admissions that you can go back to in a few years. That said, it's extremely competitive to get into these programs. And from the school's perspective, they're not looking, you know, they're not looking to help Ellen out. So she feels better about herself for three years. What they're doing is they're trying to find those people who may be lost to industry. In other words, they're finding these extraordinarily accomplished STEM students who are going to go to Google or Apple, do extraordinarily well, and basically not think twice and look back for an MBA degree. So the schools are essentially trying to capture them early and saying, listen, we think we can add a lot of value and we want to admit you now for a future start. And that's their goal in that process. So I would say at Ingenious Prep, we see many, many more students interested in this program than are really qualified. So I, I just want to flag that as a, as a very difficult road to go down, but it certainly is possible. Is there anything else you'd like to share with potential applicants? My top advice is to know why you want the MBA degree and what you're going to do with it from the moment you start at school. Um, maybe my second piece of advice is to basically go to the best school you get into. And of course, there are caveats in terms of location and service and industry and things like that. But essentially, um, you know, a lot of the MBA's value is not in the knowledge transfer, but it's on that prestige that it confers to you. So I would, you know, really think hard if you're going to, you know, if you're going to forego a highly ranked school for a low, lower ranked school. Um, and then third, um, you know, think about the finances as you had spoke about. MBAs are very expensive. It will take years to recoup what you paid. And you know, not only the outflow of what you paid, but you are foregoing wages for a couple of years while you're getting your MBA. So for the vast majority of students who go to the top business schools, they have an extraordinary return on their investment. But for certain students, it does not work out as well. So I think that's the third piece to, to really think about hard. Thank 
you so much for joining us today, Daniel. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into MBA admissions. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have a question or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag Inside Admissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.